Woe to her that is filthy and polluted, to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice, she received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord, she drew not near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions, her judges are evening wolves, they gnaw not the bone till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons, her priests have polluted the sanctuary, they have done violence to the law. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you are a just God, that you will not let sinners go on to eternity in their sins, that there are judgments even in this life that you mete out for our good. And we pray that you would teach us to set our hope in you and to repent when you correct us, to acknowledge our sins and to turn from them. And so we pray your blessing on this time of reading and of hearing your word, of preaching and of hearing your word, that we might grow in grace and in knowledge. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We've been doing a study in Zephaniah for the last two weeks. First week, we reviewed chapter one at a high level, making comments of doctrines and duties from chapter one. And then chapter two last week, considering a call to repentance to the people of God from chapter two, both to those who are wicked and to those who are godly. Now in chapter three, we begin to get into the consolation. Now this may not sound like much of a consolation, the verses that we read, but we will get to it, God willing, in the weeks to follow. We have in verses one and two of this passage, a general condemnation of a city that cannot be corrected. The word we use is incorrigible. If you ever hear your parents call you that, kids, that's not a good thing. It means you cannot be corrected. You're incorrigible. Now let's read, starting at verse one again. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. First is the word woe. He says, woe to her. Now we use that word in a different sense, at least how it sounds. This one means, alas, you are cursed. You're going to get plagues. You're going to be judged. That's the idea. It's foretelling that there is some evil to come for this person. Woe unto you, Jesus said to Bethsaida, because they had heard the things that Jesus had said and they had seen his miracles and it would be more tolerable in the day of judgment. So he's saying there's curses coming at the day of judgment for you. Here, the woe or the curses are to the filthy and polluted city who oppresses, he says. He says that this city is filthy. Woe to her that is filthy. This word can mean to be in rebellion or to be filthy and dirty. It's like if your parents told you, don't go play in the mud, and you went out and rebelled against them and got all dirty. That's the idea. God told them, don't play in the mud and muck of your sin, and they went and did it anyways. Now, if you think about Jerusalem, what was in Jerusalem at this time? There was the temple, wasn't there? And what would you think of if you considered the temple? What sort of things did they do? Did they allow filthy people into the temple? No. If you were unclean, you had to stay away from the temple until you were, what? Cleansed. 
So they thought of themselves, their priests would wash their hands and feet when they went in. They would sprinkle clean water. They would have all kinds of cleansings for the flesh. But he says, you're filthy. Your city is filled with external washings, but not on the inside. You wash, Jesus said, the external part of the cup and the platter, but inside what? Dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So the city was hypocritical. It was filthy, he says, and polluted. This can mean to defile or to desecrate or to pollute. It's where you take a holy thing, which is considered to be pure and clean, and you make it defiled and filthy. It doesn't mean they didn't do the external rites that God had commanded, but it means that they polluted them by their own devices. John Calvin notes on this, as they that often washed themselves with water, and as they carefully observed other rites of outward sanctity, the prophet derides their hypocrisy, for they did not regard the real design of the ceremonies. Did you know that the laws concerning cleanness and the various types of foods that are to be eaten in the book of Leviticus, they actually follow on the false worship offered up by the two sons of Aaron who were consumed with fire. And then God says that he's to be sanctified by those who draw near to him. And then he gives all these laws about clean and unclean this, this animal, that animal, this ritual, that cleansing, this and that. What is the point? The point of the ceremonies was to point to our inward uncleanness and our need for Christ. Like the New Testament talks about, we need sprinkling of the blood of Christ to cleanse our conscience, not the sprinkling of water and the ashes of a heifer. That externally cleansed the flesh, but we have been cleansed internally. And that's what they should have known. You can't just go through the external rites and expect that you'll be cleansed. No. We must go further than that. Not only was it a filthy and polluted city rather than a clean and holy city, but also it was an oppressing city. Not merely defiled in God's worship with the external form lacking the internal substance, but also they were oppressive toward their neighbor. We have two tables in the law. You remember that from Deuteronomy 4. The first table says, here's how you should worship only one God, the object of your worship is the first commandment, the manner of your worship, the second commandment, the spirit with which you worship in the third commandment, and the appointed time for your worship in the fourth commandment. Okay, so that's God's worship. Then the second table, what does it tell us? How to love your neighbor as you love yourself? Do you think oppression is in accordance with the second table of the law? No, it's a violation of the second table of the law. So this city was not merely a violator of the first table, but also of the second table. Those who were downtrodden, they didn't lift them up. They didn't help them, as Paul says to the Corinthians, that they would have the spirit of generosity for all that God had done for them to help those who were poor. No, they stole from the poor. They oppressed the poor. This is the sad status of the whole body of the people. I note then concerning this that true worship is both internal and external. We have to do the right things externally that God has commanded, but we must also do it with the right attitude, with the right thoughts, with the right affections. 
with love for God, with a desire for his glory, to see his name declared among all the nations. This is what true worship is all about in the inside. We must reverence God in our hearts and minds with our choices and our affections, in our thoughts as well as in our words, what we say. True worship must also be given to God in the form that he commands, not according to what tradition has passed down or what I think is good or you think is good or whatever, what makes me feel good and I feel like I'm on a mountaintop. No, worship is according to God's commandments. But also, it leads, true worship does, it leads to obedience to the second table, to the love for our neighbor, not oppressing the poor, but assisting the poor. Let us then worship God internally in our minds, our thoughts, and our affections, as well as in the due order that he's prescribed in the scriptures. There is a different form of worship in the Old Testament as under the new. And actually in the Old Testament, there's a different order of worship in the day of the patriarchs as in the days of Moses, as in the days of David. God changed his order of worship even then. And he has also changed it in this New Testament era as well. But whatever the case may be, we need to hear at our specific time, what has God commanded me to do? Notice verse 2. She obeyed the city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. These are heavy indictments. First, she did not obey the voice. The word literally means to hear, to listen, or to obey, to come under the word. What voice did she not hear? What was the voice of God speaking through the prophets? She would not listen. Jerusalem would not be corrected by the prophets. We must listen carefully to God's voice. We must prioritize his word. We must read it in private. Each day you should read the Bible yourself. You should read it as families, especially the heads of households should lead their families in the reading and consideration of God's word. We should read it publicly and hear the reading and preaching of it publicly. These are all the voice of God speaking to us through his word, the Bible. Notice, she did not do this. She did not listen. She did not obey. She would not carefully listen to the word of God. She would not prioritize its priorities. She prioritized the mere external form of washing the external part of the cup and the platter. Notice God corrected her for this, but did she receive it? Nope. She received not correction. This word means to be chastened, like a spanking. God came to Jerusalem and spanked Jerusalem. But did Jerusalem receive that correction? No, she received it in a manner because God gave it to her. God gave her the spanking. But when we say someone receives correction, it means that they actually say, I need that. That they learn the lesson that God has for them. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll look at verses 5 through 13 concerning the chastening of God. Page 1216 of your pew Bibles. We'll start our reading at verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children... My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, 
and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Notice there, don't fight against God when he spanks you. That's what he's saying. That idea of your hands hanging down, of your feeble knees, oh, I can't walk to the place where I'm getting a spanking. I don't want to come see Dad. I'll wander out of the way. No, he says, make a straight path. Receive joyfully the chastening of God, knowing what? That God will do you good by this chastening, that God does it out of love, as he does for all of his children. Become teachable by the correction. Don't harden your heart and say, I'm not going to receive that. That's what they did. That's what this city did. She received not correction. Calvin again. True religion begins with teachableness. When we submit to God and to his word, it is really to enter on the work of worshiping him aright. How is it that we will worship God aright? Well, you have to learn to listen. What does he actually say in his word? And that's what they didn't do. They didn't listen to God. They didn't, when he came along and spanked them, they let their knees grow feeble. They walked out of the way. They didn't go directly to him and say, thank you, Lord, I know you love me, and that's why you're chastening. No. Though chastenings may hurt and inconvenience us, let us receive them with teachableness. Let us learn to follow God's word more fully by such corrections. The psalmist said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn to keep thy statutes. Let all of your sufferings and all of your trials and all of your difficulties bring you to this one thing. I will now listen to God more faithfully. I will now be more teachable to what he says. Jerusalem did not do that. She did not receive correction. Let's turn back to Zephaniah chapter 3. Verse 2, she obeyed not the voice, she received not correction, she trusted not in the Lord. Do you know what Proverbs tells us? It says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on thine own understanding. What do we think is good and what do we think is bad? And what does God think is good and what does God think is bad? God says, don't trust in your notions of good and evil. Don't trust in your own thoughts. Don't put confidence in yourselves, but trust in the Lord. Put confidence in me. Rely on me. Jerusalem didn't do that. She trusted in her policy. She trusted in her riches. She trusted in her own wisdom, supposedly. But she did not trust in the Lord. 
You can look at Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 and 6 for a curse God puts on those who trust in themselves rather than the Lord. Then he says, she drew not near to her God. God had tied himself by a covenant to his people, like a testament. He had adopted them. He had joined them to himself in a family relationship. And she was to draw near to God. She was to come near in light of that covenant. That was the outward and external means by which she could draw near to the living God, not just go through forms, but actually draw near to God. Now, how is it that we draw near to God? Turn back to Hebrews chapter 10, page 1213 of your pew Bibles. Hebrews chapter 10 concerning drawing near to God. We'll read verses 21 and 22. Verse 21. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice there, how do we draw near to God? Through the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, through the priesthood of Jesus Christ. That's how we draw near to God. We have full assurance of faith, he says, having our hearts sprinkled. That's how you can have assurance, because your conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So faith is one means by which we draw near to God. Turn over to James chapter 4. James, right after the book of Hebrews, page 1220 of your pew Bibles. James 4, we'll read verses 8 through 10. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Notice there, how is it that we draw nigh to God? Not just through faith in Jesus Christ, But when we have sinned by repentance, by mourning over our sins, by affliction and mourning and weeping, turning our laughter into mourning and your joy into heaviness, by humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord, by cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts, these are the ways by which we draw near to God, mainly faith and repentance. Let us then draw near to God in repentance and in faith. Let us trust in the blood of Jesus Christ sprinkled upon our conscience, our great high priest, and let us also turn from our wicked ways to God's most righteous ways. Let us humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, knowing that he will lift us up in due time. Then verses 3 and 4, we have not just a general condemnation as verses 1 and 2 of the city as a whole, We now have a particular condemnation of the rulers in the church and in the state. Verse 3. Let's turn back to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 3. He says there, Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bone till the morrow. Now this is... 
you might think, well, aren't lions pretty strong? Wouldn't it be nice if someone described me as a roaring lion? But that's not the point. It's not emphasizing the strength of the lion. It's emphasizing its beastly character. Sometimes the Bible does emphasize the ruling of a lion or the strength of the lion. Here it emphasizes these princes who ought to draw the people to good actually want to destroy them. That's what lions roar for because they want to destroy their prey. So he goes then from the body of the people, the city, now to the princes of the city. They're brutes, they're ravenous, they're covetous. Though they are high, they draw to the basest and lowest of things. Her judges, he says, are evening wolves. You know what wolves do in the evening? They're very hungry at night. They don't come out for their prey typically during the day. So they'll come out at night and they're hungry. They're hungry to get some little creature that they can destroy. Think about a judge. What's a judge supposed to do? He's supposed to defend the people who are innocent. He's supposed to punish the people that do wickedness. But if he's ravening and hungry, he looks to feed himself. He looks to better his own condition. He doesn't moderate the wickedness by condemning those who do evil. He doesn't encourage virtue by praising and justifying the innocent in their cause. No. He will condemn the righteous for a bribe. As wolves, they've gone out all day without food, and now they are hungry and ready to devour. That's exactly how these judges were. And then he says in verse 3, they gnaw not the bone till the morrow. They're so greedy that they can't eat little by little until the morning comes and then they have food for the morning. No, they devour it quickly. They're really quick to get their good, to get their money, to get their blessings. Many magistrates and bureaucrats received money to tell people they ought to take a certain shot. Did they care what that would do to the people? Nope. They cared about the money that they got. They were paid to advertise for something that was not proven, that we did not know about, that we didn't know the side effects. Actually, we did, and we knew the side effects were very, very bad. But they concealed that from people and tried to make sure nobody could find out. Gnawing not the bone till the morrow. That's exactly the kind of magistrates that we have. They are greedy. I noted, noticed then this doctrine. A wicked civil body will receive greedy and destructive rulers. A wicked civil body will receive greedy and destructive rulers. God judges a wayward people with ungodly rulers. If a people are not able to be corrected by God, guess what? He'll send magistrates to correct them. Not correct them for evil, but just ruin and destroy their nation. That is the judgment of God against nations who do not repent of their sins, who do not learn from their chastisements, who are not teachable. Let us then not be such a people who deserve rulers like we have. We can complain about our rulers. We can complain about Joe Biden. We can complain about Anthony Fauci. But what sort of people deserves rulers like that? Idol-worshiping people? incorrigible people, people who swear to God, 
and then swear by Malcolm, as we saw in chapter 1, people whose religious loyalties are divided between the true God and false gods. This is the sort of people that we are. We are unbelieving. We trust in our own thoughts. Oh, well, the solutions to our problem can be medicated, or we can see a psychiatrist, and they'll fix everything. They'll diagnose my troubles and give me a drug to fix it. That's man's wisdom. God says, such a people receive these kinds of rulers. Such a city as Jerusalem was had these kinds of judges and these kinds of princes. Notice also in verse 4, not just the princes and judges in the civil sphere, but also the prophets and the priests in the ecclesiastical sphere. Verse 4, her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Now, note here, the prophets, first of all. He honors them with the title of prophets, although he's speaking of false prophets. These prophets were not truly prophets of God, but they were light, he says. This literally means to be frothy or to be wanton or reckless. They weren't grave. They couldn't be taken seriously. They did not speak God's word. They they said things that they thought were true, that they came up with their own thoughts, these things, and then they would say, thus speaketh God, da-da-da-da-da. No, they were light and frothy people. Any teacher in our day who does not teach the scripture, but their own inventions, with a little bit of scripture to back it up, this is what he's talking about. As there were false prophets then, so there are false teachers now, Peter says. We have teachers who will not teach the word of God, either by their example, by their deeds, or by their doctrines and their teaching. He says also that they're treacherous persons. You rely upon these people to tell you the word of God, but is that actually what they're telling you? No. So they are treacherous. They're betraying you. They're making you think that you're receiving the word of God, but you're actually receiving a sham Let us then avoid teachers or pastors who are frothy, who are light and treacherous. They are to expound and open the oracles of God. That's their job. They're to give clear and convincing proofs of all that they say from Scripture. And if they do not do this, God says, they're light. They're treacherous. They're betraying you. Notice also not just the prophets, but the priests. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Now, to pollute means to profane, to defile, or to desecrate. That's exactly the opposite of what you should do with a sanctuary or any holy thing. The word here, sanctuary, could be the holy things, any holy thing that God had ordained. They took those things, and rather than treat them with a sanctity that was appropriate, they defiled them. The doctrines of our faith, the acts of God's worship, their lives were not according to their calling. You remember Eli's sons? They made people kick against the sacrifices because they were vain and light persons. They polluted the sanctuary. Then he says they have done violence to the law. They misapplied the law. Peter says they twist the scriptures, these false teachers, to their own destruction. 
This word violence means to wrong someone or something, to treat it with violence or to do wrongly. The law was torn from its context and misapplied. It was taken out of its ordinary sense and twisted to the purposes of these wicked priests. Rather than a straightforward interpretation and application of God's word, they had by their doctrines and their deeds wronged God's very law. I note then that those with church office, whether pastors or bishops, deacons or teachers or whatever they would like to be called, they may err, I may err, others may err. They have erred, I have erred, others have erred. But the divine scripture is the only infallible rule. It's the only thing that will not lead you astray. And that's why scripture says, if they speak not according to the scriptures, to the law and the testimony, it's because there's no light in them. Don't listen to them. Therefore, I exhort us, let us readily receive the preaching of God's word, but also let us test all things by the rule of scripture, not by the rule of how we feel or what we prefer or what justifies the current course of action that I've chosen, but rather, what does it actually say? What does it actually mean? So we see here from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, a people who could not be corrected, a people who were chastened by God and did not accept it and learn from it. Rather, they trusted in their own wisdom, not in God. They didn't obey his voice speaking in scripture. They polluted the holy things that should have cleansed them or reminded them of their need for repentance and faith, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. They did not do those things to draw near to God, no. They excluded themselves from God's true worship by being wicked and hardened in their hearts. And so, therefore, God judged them with evil rulers, princes like roaring lions, judges like evening wolves. This is the judgment of God, prophets who are light and frothy, treacherous persons, priests who polluted the holy things and did violence to the law, this is very much where we are in our day. And you have to ask yourself, if we have such rulers, what are we as a people? We are an unclean people, an unteachable people, and a wicked people. And this God gives in order to encourage his people, as we'll see through the rest of this chapter. God's going to give consolation to the remnant, the faithful who are left, looking around them and seeing all these wicked people. What is the answer, Lord? How do we make sense of this? And he will give us those very answers. And thus far, the explanation of God's holy word from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Let's pray.